is that what I learned to be as a child as a survival mechanism was a liar. And what's interesting is that I could lie better because I hadn't accepted the truth myself. But once I accepted the truth for myself, the lying was more painful. And I knew that I couldn't continue to live in the pain of that lie. and welcome to Working Your Way, a podcast dedicated to unraveling the journey of being authentic in the workplace. I'm your host, Sunny Sadakar, and my guest today is Eduardo Placer. He's a former stage actor and now the CEO and founder of Fearless Communicators, a public speaking and coaching company. Eduardo calls himself a story doula. He helps bring stories into the world, primarily those of change makers and innovators, of women and people of color and members of the LGBTQ community. In this episode, it's a little bit different than some because Eduardo, even in the early days of his career, would tell you that he felt like he could fully be himself at work. But that version of him was fueled by this major moment of liberation when he came out as gay at the age of 18. In the spirit of authenticity, Eduardo actually agreed to do this interview as he was home in bed recovering from a surgery. And for the record, I did ask him if he wanted to postpone to a much later date, but he was good with it. And that didn't stop him from sprinkling his favorite Broadway musical lines throughout our conversation. And in this conversation, we really go deep on belonging and what it really looks like and how he found his authenticity as an actor and how he's using his talents and his way of being to create a company culture that's overflowing with generosity and care. Thanks so much for joining us in this conversation. Hello and welcome to Working Your Way, Eduardo. I am thrilled to have you on as a guest. Yes, thrilled to be here. (laughs) Thrilled to be here. I am sure that Many people in your presence uh, express being thrilled because you are a light. And I want to get into your story. And I think it's impossible to get to any of your story today without really talking about what you've expressed as kind of like your biggest moment of liberation, which was coming out at the age of 18. Yeah. Yeah. So we're going to jump right in and I'd We're going to jump right in there. Ooh. Yeah. Yeah. Who was Eduardo before that moment? Before. Yes. I would say that I was muted. I don't think people have an experience. I think it's like if you think of black and white and Technicolor, if we think about The Wizard of Oz to be super gay, (laughs) you know, I think pre-coming out, it was very black and white. And when I came out of the closet, it was full on Technicolor. And I think what happened is there are conscious and unconscious ways that I think your community or the world around you will communicate to you if it's safe for you to be yourself or not. And I think for me, as a Cuban child growing up in Miami, Florida, the child of immigrants. Now, my family had fled Spain because of Franco and Cuba because of Castro. In some ways, we were operating in a space of translation and that home life and everything was in Spanish. 
And then we were in a world that was English dominated, but really kind of Spanglish dominated because Cuban culture is so strong in Miami, Florida. And I think there were ways that I naturally expressed myself even before gayness was an option, uh, which was feminine. And that was problematic. So there was a natural expression that I had. There was a way that the pitch of my voice, uh, I remember there's a memory that I had where I would like climb up on the jungle gym and I loved gymnastics and I loved the monkey bars. And I, you know, that's the, that's the stuff that I loved. I didn't love like baseball or football or anything like that. And I remember like looking at the girls twirling the batons, you know, and I was like, oh my God, what I desperately want to do more than anything in the world is be a baton twirler. <laughs> And I think I like (laughs) confessed it to my mother. She was like, he's looking very longingly at those batons, not at the girls, but at the batons. Right, right, exactly. Uh, (laughs) And I think that there were ways in which already my interests had to be molded. Now, what's interesting is that I have an identical twin brother who's straight. So when we were little kids uh, and we were on the soccer field, you know, my brother played forward and he played goalie and he played sweeper. I mean, he was basically up and down the entire field and I could not be bothered. So I was like, you know, I don't even know the position. I'm like upstage left, <laughs> but I was like fullback <laughs> defense. Again, I could not be bothered. And, uh, and I was the only child I think who ever finished a little league soccer league with a rock collection named after the Von Trapp children. So I was like, and this little rock is Friedrich and this little rock is Louisa and this one's Maria, you know, and this one's Rolf, you know, like I just had my own hyperactive imagination. And, and I knew that in the sharing of that, that that was weird or strange or not something that other boys my age talked about or created. I mean, necessity is the mother of invention. There's, there were no action figures for the sound of music or the King and I, so I had to create them in my own head. Now, I don't know how many people are like, how many little boys are like, mommy, what I really want is my Anna and the King of Siam action figures so we can like (laughs) do shall we dance. Uh, So I think that I got some coding early on that I had to hide that, that that had to exist Mm -hmm. in quiet and had to be silenced. And I mean, now uh, I I have the privilege of running a public speaking coaching business. And I talk about a very specific moment when I was in second grade at show and tell, where I basically told everyone in the class that I named the seal that I slept with every night after the boy that I had a crush on in second grade. And that was a moment where it wasn't just like a random expression that I made, but there was a direct communication of a desire or a centering of someone that is not the way boys normally talk about other boys in 1986 in Miami, Florida. We live in a brave new world now uh, and not so brave as people think, but still uh, in that experience realized that there was a danger in me actually speaking the truth. Yeah. And as someone who desperately wanted to perform and sing and dance and be an actor, of course, that's what I wanted to do because I was performing from the moment I woke up to the moment I went to sleep. So it's really not until later that I realized that in some ways, acting for me was uh, an act of survival. So that's what that was. And then it became passion, desire, <laughs> due to me, uh, 
as profession, but then I couldn't also do it as a kid because my parents didn't have the tools or the resources or even a framework of understanding a world where I could or would be a professional stage actor. You know, they're like, you're going to be a lawyer. Or you're going to be a doctor. You're going to be an engineer. You're going to be as, as an the accountant or something else. As the conversation goes, right? <laughs> totally, totally, totally. Um, yeah. And to come back to that moment, I think that what happened when I came out at 18, my freshman year of college, and, and I want to talk about coming out as it's not like a one moment and then it's not one and done. It is, it is an ever evolving conversation. Uh, but the first person that you come out to is yourself, right? So there's the, the existence of an idea of, for me, homosexuality and gayness that exists out in the world. And I have feelings and I have desires and I may think, but I haven't equated yet that who I am is gay. And that moment, I remember I was a freshman in college and I was talking to a friend of mine that we'd gone to high school together. And he was in a process of coming out and he had a lot of shame and he wasn't saying it. So I kind of interrupted him and I said, let me just say what I think you want to say, which is you're trying to tell me that you're gay. And then he affirmed it. He said, yes. And then I just started asking him questions. And I had this out-of-body experience where I was kind of like floating above my body. And then finally, like, I came back and I was like, you don't have to explain yourself to me because I know exactly how you feel. And then I said the words out loud, I'm gay. And there's something about thinking it and then saying it out loud because the moment it's said out loud the moment it is in the world it's no longer yours mm -hmm. it now belongs to other people and now they take it and they talk about it and they tell other people so it's like literally you start a spark and then there's a wildfire and in the mid-90s people love that news because that was like you know was the moment where you named it to yourself internally when had that come? Was that kind of in that moment as well as you were asking it, the questions you wanted to ask him or? It was a, it, it was like in a line, it was a moment of alignment. You know, I had like, I, like I had gone to my freshman year of college and I had made a conscious decision. I would want to say after my sophomore year of high school, where I was like, I'm not dating women. Cause I haven't met the right woman yet. The right woman for me is not in Miami, Florida. Then I went to the University of Pennsylvania. I was like, she's going to be an Ivy Leaguer. <laughs> Do you know I mean? And, you know, and it, just a different type of quality of woman than what was in my world in Miami, Florida. Uh, it had at least, and my mother tried to hold on to that belief <laughs> after I came out of the closet. It was like, mm, it's not that. It's not that. I don't think it's that. Uh, so I, I think that I'd always had a, a desire, you know, for the attention and affection of boys and men. But I, I had not, when I came out to myself, like it was a purely intellectual experience. I had not had a relationship with a man. I had not had a sexual experience. So it was all for me intellectual. I'd had, I'd like made out with girls and I'd held hands with girls, but I wasn't, I had never fully been sexually active with a woman either. Uh, and yet I knew that there was something missing. So I, when I came out to myself, 
it was like, I think all the math has mathed and it adds up. And then I had to prove it. <laughs> so then I went to my first gay bar and I had my first little moment. I was like, yep, I'm gay. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> You're like confirmed. <laughs> confirmed. Uh, and then I think what became interesting is there was about three months where I was out to myself and not out to my parents. And what's interesting about, I think, specifically talking about the work that I do and this word that I know we'll probably get to, which is authenticity, the word of 2023 that I have some challenges and problems with, uh, (laughs) is that, is that what I learned to be as a child as a survival mechanism was a liar. Hmm. And what's interesting is that I could lie better because I hadn't accepted the truth myself. But once I accepted the truth for myself, the lying was more painful. Uh, And I knew that I couldn't continue to live in the pain of that lie. So at about three months after coming out, I came out to my, to my parents uh, and then to my first to my twin brother, then to my sister and then to my parents. And, and although painful and terrifying and all of that, I think it's interesting. I, I often say, say there's no such thing as private speaking. All speaking is public speaking. To have to say out loud and identify and name the thing that you most fear and invite that and bring that in and, ma- and start the journey of making peace with that truth and that reality, uh, I think that courageous act became for me the greatest act of liberation. And one that I feel privileged to have done it at at 18. You know, I think there are people who wait a lot longer to have that type of eureka moment. And that happens for them personally and also professionally. Uh, And although I don't wish upon other people the pain, uh, I do wish with them, I do wish for them the privilege of the revolution of self that I can be exactly who I want to be. And I can live in the world exactly as I choose to live in the world. Um, obviously with love and respect and, <laughs> and human decency <laughs> and all the things. Exactly. In, in relation to other people. Um, in relation to other people, always in relationship to other people. As Eduardo is sharing his story, he says, the moment it's said out loud... The moment it's in the world, it's no longer yours. And I'm thinking, I have no idea what this must feel like. Certainly, there have been things that I've held back from the world or I've had to admit to myself or others. And many of us have grappled with things like that. But in Eduardo's and and other stories that have been shared with me about coming out, I've often heard that there's this fear present. That this thing, this part of who they are, that if people knew it might alienate everyone in their life or that they might lose everything. And it's pretty profound. We've talked a lot on this podcast about the choice between 
authenticity and safety as this trade-off. And this is exactly that. I can be me and risk it all, or I can live a lie. And all of this comes after you first admit the truth to yourself to own and accept this part of who you are. And after that, it feels so hard to hold it back from the rest of the world. As we get back to the conversation with Eduardo, we're going to dive into what happened after this truth was out in the world. As this process is happening, right, it, like internally naming it, right, okay, the math is finally added up, saying it out loud to your friend, coming out to your family, kind of like completing that cycle of like, this is out in the world now, all the people that I need to know, deeply need to know, know. What was happening like in your body over the course of that process? If you think about liberation and 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 that alignment, what did it feel like to you? I think what happened too is there were several things. One, whereas I would say the earlier part of my life pre-coming out was about hiding and covering any femininity, because for me, femininity or the performance of femininity or the experience of other people as see, seeing me as feminine was a flag that I was gay. Now, I'm not equating gayness with femininity, but if we think about tropes that we have before we have gay or um, right. or faggot or whatever the words are, and I say that word with responsibility is a word that has been used for me or against me, uh, that the the before that they have sissy and girly, right? Mm. So the issue with gayness, yeah. specifically for men, I don't believe is gayness. It's not the act or love of being in men. It's being feminine. That is less than. It's it's showing weakness. It is. Um, it needs to be fixed. You know, I'm thinking about all the language that we have about performing power you know, deepening the voice, standing still, uh, that there, there's a way that, that we model masculinity as power and femininity as weakness. And that is both internal and external. So, uh, so I think what happened is when I came out, I then over-indexed on the feminine. I was like, for that that had been repressed, I was like, work, <laughs> you know, she is out. <laughs> she is out. And I think eventually, you know, if it's a pendulum, like, like I think that there, that because of that, I think now, like, you know, people would know if there's a phrase that they immediately equate with me. It's like, yeah, it's like uncontrollable, that yeah. beam of light and energy that I have. I don't think I would have shown that before because I would have thought that that was feminine. So I would have muted that. So I think that even yeah. when I, after I came out, my sister and my brother were like, you're so much more fun just because I was just so always hyper-conscious and policing myself on gesture, behavior, what I talked about, what I didn't talk about, what my interests were. So I think physically there was like a liberation in the body followed now by body dysmorphia. <laughs> you know, and then being like, now, like I'm also stepping into sexual identity and sexuality. And, yeah. and, and then now I'm also present to toxic femininity 
Do you know what I mean? And it's like, I'm too fat and I need to be skinnier. I need my six pack and I need my biceps and I need my body to look a certain way. You know, like all the ways yeah. that the toxic feminine can now become superficial or catty. And not that I ever felt comfortable in that, but I could note that I was being impacted by, by that while I was also simultaneously as someone who's a stage actor. Now, we live in a world today, which I would say is stepping into the expansion of non-binariness and, and the, and the in-between, I would say in the mid nineties, it wasn't that. And I think as a gay man, I also had to cover that I was gay to be a professional actor. Like I, not that I, I hit it cause I couldn't, but I also couldn't walk in to an audition and be like, Hey girl, it's time to audition. Let's sing the fucking song. Like, you couldn't do that either because they were like, yeah. who just walked into this room, right? Because ultimately <laughs> you're also dealing with, um, I mean, you're dealing with an industry where a lot of gay characters are actually paid, played by straight actors. Yeah. So, and then they win Academy Awards for it. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's, there's something, I mean, it's, it's so profound how acting and playing roles has transitioned throughout your life of like, that being the escape for you when you were young and in musicals and, you know, in a way it kind of, to me, it's like musicals were a way that you could like safely express a little bit of that femininity. Totally. It's like singing, singing's okay mm-hmm. in a musical. Like you're allowed to totally. do that there. Right. And, yeah. um, and playing those roles. And so you had a, a, a have had a, a long career as a professional actor. Um, mm-hmm. I want to talk about when you graduated from Penn, moved to New York City. What were you mm-hmm. doing professionally, um, acting and otherwise? Well, I say I moved to New York City with a dance belt, a Diet Coke, and a dream. <laughs> That's like <laughs> what, how I landed in New York City. So I, I graduated from Penn in 1999, and I have an, I had an undergraduate degree in English. I had a B in English. It's one of my favorite uh songs from the musical Avenue Q. What do you do with a BA in English? <laughs> <laughs> you become so an etymology expert and use that in all ways. Just totally. As you do. <laughs> totally. Well, I knew that I wanted to act. I knew that I wanted to perform, but I also couldn't afford to perform because uh, of union rules. And I wasn't in the, in the actors union at the time. So they were paying anywhere between 150 to maybe $200 a week to do that work. And you would often do that work outside of New York. So you'd be hired outside of New York for eight to 12 weeks, non-union, you'd be paid 150 to $200 a week. And then, I mean, what do you do with that money after you're paying expenses? I mean, you have an apartment, I mean, in Manhattan, you know, even in, in Brooklyn, wherever you're living at the time, it was like unaffordable. So I couldn't afford to do it. So I got a temp job and I had spent summers in the past temping in New York City because it was a great way to get some money. And I found myself at Standard & Poor's, the benchmark of the stock market in human resources. And I became an administrative assistant for them for almost three years. And I think that was my one main corporate kind of gig. And it was a combo platter between Standard & Poor's, which at that time was run and owned by McGraw Hill. Mm -hmm. So I found myself jumping not only within HR at Human Resources, but then also the executive floor 
at Tupin Plaza at McGraw Hill or, or at Tupin Plaza, but then also at corporate McGraw Hill. <laughs> so there was a way that I think they also had someone who was smart and bright and verbal and communicative and could do the tasks that needed to be done. And I also had no attachment to an admin career in corporate, but that also gave me a lot of permission. So uh, yeah. they said that I was like mirth factor. And I, this was all before September 11th uh, in New York city, but I would uh, in the, during lunch, this is in the early days of survivor, we would do like physical challenges that we would set up with conference tables and chairs and people had to like, run and crawl and like <laughs> i mean it was like insanity. an actual obstacle course <laughs> an obstacle course in the conference room and then i came up with a little jingle uh when people would walk in and i'd say welcome 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 to snphr and <laughs> and people were like i don't know what the hell is happening but i think they celebrated now it helped that i wasn't an employee yeah, yeah. So I I wasn't fully tethered. I was connected, but I was enough of an outsider that gave me permission. Like I didn't need them. Yeah. I was that grateful is... for them, but I didn't need them. And that that whether true or untrue, whatever that is, that feel like I didn't need them gave me permission. It's it makes so much sense also because I think that when we talk about hiding parts of ourselves or not fully being ourselves, it's like, what are the stakes if I do? What's the trade-off? What's the 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 potential danger in it? And for a lot of people, it is, I don't want to lose my job. I cannot lose my job. This is my career. And for you, there was a little distance there because you were doing that work to do your career. You were doing that work to enable the actual career that you wanted to do. And so I think it's so interesting just that you know, like you were able to show up really authentically in that space and largely because it wasn't your livelihood. And it was celebrated. People were like, we love that energy. And I would go and I would work for two weeks or, or 10 weeks, and then they would I would have a job waiting for me when I got back. In Eduardo's case, he walked into HR at S&P, and he led with that, as he says, that magnetic, fun, clown version of himself. And it was welcome with open arms. I think sometimes we test the waters and we do get that message loud and clear that our authenticity isn't welcome. And I think other times we may have tested the waters before and we carry that old message with us into a new environment. I recently had a sidebar with a woman at a client workshop I was leading and she was talking about being guarded and how And this new company she's in, she just doesn't want to do it anymore, that she was exhausted keeping these walls up so high. And where we landed with that conversation was the question of, can you let down that wall one inch? Don't tear down, you know, not to tear down the entire wall, but just let it down a little bit and see what happens. And then if you do that, and it goes well, maybe let it down one more inch. 
And this is really complicated, but it's very real. If you're feeling like you can't bring you into your workplace and it's not necessarily based on your current company or team or manager, but maybe based on previous experiences that you've had, it might be possible that you're carrying an old message that you received. And I wonder, is there a way to test the waters slowly and safely to see if that's still true or if maybe more of you might be welcome? Exactly. I think the idea of with vulnerability, uh, stepping into like, this is who I am. You are taking a little bit of a risk in those rooms, in some rooms, probably a lot of a risk, but to have that, it's almost like, <laughs> I want to say fake it till you make it, but it's like, no, I'm, I'm all into this. And therefore it, it has this ripple effect on other people. Um, and it's received differently than if you stepped into that power and that truth meekly, it, it might be received very differently. Yeah. Yeah. And again, I've, I've had my share of nemesi, <laughs> you know, of people who are like, like I am, I am a reflection or a, uh, or who I embody or the freedom that I present with or the liberation that I present can be, uh, shocking and upsetting and actually something that somebody, I, I may not be somebody's cup of tea and that is okay. And there's one of my favorite lines from the play as you like it is sell while you can, you are not for all markets. <laughs> you know, it's like, I'm not, I'm not Walmart. You know, I'm not the blue plate special for two ninety nine, <laughs> and that's okay. And that's yeah. okay. Um, yeah. And I think I think that th th there is a part of me that I think also that I've had to navigate, which is because so much of my origin pain is a desire and want for love because of a belief that who I am is fundamentally unlovable, right, as a queer person, that there is a part of me that would over-index as a people pleaser. And I think that one of the things that I've had to make room for is the fact that Sometimes people will not be pleased and that is going to be okay. And sometimes people will be uncomfortable and that is okay. And sometimes people will not like me and that is also okay. It's the, the root of that, the molecule shifter, right? The chameleon, the adapt to whatever room you're in. Um, we've, we've taught, you know, that I work with the Enneagram and we've talked a little bit about it, but that Enneagram type three of, I can read the room. I know exactly what people are willing to accept, what they want to accept, what their expectations are, how to meet their expectations or exceed their expectations. And I can just shift into that space and be that person. And then the transition from, am I doing this because I want to do it? Like, am I doing this actively versus passively, protectively from the experience of if I don't do that, it's not safe. So let's talk about people pleasing. So many people identify as people pleasers. And in my work, I've recognized that there are so many ways that this can actually come to life. We have these self-identified titles that are sometimes things that we latch onto to explain certain types of behavior. 
But if we dig deeper, we might see that there's a root cause or a motivation to that behavior that we can actually work on or maybe change. People pleasing can look like going along with others and not sharing your opinion, um, not always even being aware of your perspective when you're around others with lots of energy or ideas. It can sometimes look like doing things for other people, uh, even if you don't want to, or like this almost compulsion to help or solve or fix in other people's lives. And it often ends up sacrificing your own needs or having you in a position where you don't even know that your needs are there because you're so focused on the needs of others. Or it can look like being whoever you need to be in whatever room you're in and slowly getting farther and farther away from yourself. And it comes from patterns that are really deep-rooted in us, whether it's personality or trauma or attachment. Many of us have a sense that we have to please people or be accepted by others in order to belong. And belonging is a very core human need. Belonging gets us safety in the world when we're a part of something, when we're connected to people. And this isn't inherently a bad thing to want to belong or to be there for others or to want to be accepted by others, but it can often come with a trade-off. When we abandon who we truly are in service of fitting in somewhere, And so if you identify yourself as a people pleaser, I encourage you to ask what's at the root of it and what's the impact to yourself in your authenticity? What are you giving up or how are you sacrificing your connection to you for your connection to someone else? Okay, let's get back to the conversation. I was wondering in that, I'm wondering if it's sometimes like, am I doing it? And maybe for me, am I, am I, because the, 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 with any superpower, it can be used to create and it can be used to destroy. Right. So there's, uh, the, the, the power has, uh, has multiple expressions. I would say that again, from my experience, being the authentically who I am unapologetically and showing up lovingly and in service of the people who I'm in relationship with and communication with, I think inevitably disappears the difference. Right? I think because I'm, I'm showing up in service to build I'm sh- I'm showing up in service to create, right? And I and I oftentimes name my difference not as a form of separation, but I name it as a pathway to deeper connection with my audience. Right? And I think that that's kind of a new awakening that's happening and something that I'm really interested in something that's on the emergence of what I'm talking about. Uh, which is about belonging and cultures of belonging. But there is a way in which belonging for me has historically been about erasure, 
hiding, covering, masking, uh, conforming. And, and can I belong or do I belong by owning and being and centering my difference? In them, a building and a creating of something collectively that we are looking to create and generate together, right? And I think that that is where, I think it's like the next phase of the work in the DE&I landscape, which is how do we not just acknowledge that there's difference, but move through and work through that difference to recommit and realign to shared goals and shared visions that we want to generate and build together. That is not about the erasure of who you are. Because at some point, if it's not acknowledged, someone's getting erased. Right? Like it all airs and blends into whatever that dominant culture or dominant color or dominant sensibility is. And where's there room for outliers to feel like they can remain different and together and same at the same time? So I... I would love for you to share a little bit about like what is authenticity as an actor? Mm. How has that evolved for you over time? Because there's something so fundamentally interesting about being yourself and playing a role. How do the two things Correct. come together? How has it shifted yeah. for you? Yeah. Well, I think the thing with authenticity is who I am is equipped as a creative, as a creator, with a very specific spark of, I don't know, spark of creativity or light. So I will read a script and there are certain impulses or instincts that I will have that are how I would play this role, or I would say this line, or I would respond to this moment or this circumstance. And I think as an actor, that's where there's authenticity, which is where an actor has a certain level of agency to take words on a page and, and turn it into life in a way that looks and sounds and feels unique to them. And I think what's oftentimes happening in, in an audition, uh, in an audition landscape is you have directors and playwrights who are auditioning actors as creativities to see which actors kind of look and feel or sound like they think the character looks and sounds, right? So so you're kind of doing your work, but it's also kind of limited by the words the character speaks, kind of there's probably some idea that the playwright has about what the character looks like or how they behave. And oftentimes, I mean, you got to be really good to really shatter the expectation of what a character is supposed to look like. And occasionally that does happen. Uh, I think for me, the audition is key because the audition is where I, as an actor, have an opportunity to showcase for you my creativity. And it's your job as a director or as a casting director or as an agent or a producer to be like, I'm down for it or I'm not down for it. And it could be, it's just not what I'm looking for for this role. Or it could be like, I actually don't like this flavor at all. I never want to see this person again in my life. They have no idea what they're doing. You know, but I think that as an actor, your the agency and the onus is on you to always be mining and honing your own creative spark, how it is that you would 
play the role. And I think for me as an actor, uh, when I trained, so I trained in conservatory at UC San Diego in La Jolla, the, the woman who was our teacher, Kyle Donnelly, it was all around listening to and acting upon our first instinct. Because oftentimes what happens is I have an impulse and an instinct and then the brain takes over and then I become conscious and then do I want to do what the director wants or do I want to do what, you know, but like, what was that first impulse? What's that first instinct? Oftentimes that first impulse and first instinct is uniquely yours, right? How you would respond or what you would say or how you would do it, I think is, uh, is an interesting moment. And I'll give you a create, and, and and sometimes, as an actor, you have your authenticity and you have your creative point of view, and you're like, "This is how I would do it." But then the director or the playwright is like, "That's not how you're going to do it. You're going to do it this way." You're ultimately a pawn in somebody else's creative process, unless you're like a huge celebrity. I think that for me, that moment is the ability to dance in that moment of aliveness. I mean, some people call it charisma or what I call it, it's presence, which is why we teach presentation, not presentation, but presentation in our work. Uh, Like that magical moment is, and being confident in that moment takes practice. And this is something that actors have, right? Now, actors have it in some ways because uh or they're more grounded because they have they know they're blocking or they know their lines they have somebody else's lines it's different to not be memorized right to like be alive in front of an audience i have a map of what it is that i'm going to say i have clear like i know how i'm starting i know how i'm finishing i have clear transitions uh but there, there's a term that comes from flamenco that i love which is tener duende and tener duende is when the fairies take over. It's that moment of like flow or dance, or it's in music when there's a, a trill or a run that happens that wasn't written or jazz where like, like there's the, the magical mystery and alignment of the moment and music and craft and ability and genius. And it's not repeatable. It's fleeting. And uh, and in, in flamenco, there's like you know, to tener duende is like, uh, I mean, it's like re- it's like hitting it. It's like that's like the pinnacle. And again, you don't get it all the time. You get a glimpse of it. You get a glimmer of it. I love what Eduardo mentioned here, tener duende, this moment of heightened connectedness. To me, it feels like inspiration and magic. And I have to think about how this translates beyond just an, a, like an artistic creative endeavor like acting or dancing, but really fully into the creative process or innovation when we're creating something with other people. How often do we lean into that moment and trust that we have the structure we need to support that magic moment and just let it play out? If you can't tell, I'm a huge fan of the work being done at Fearless Communicators. 
So let's get back to the conversation and hear more about Eduardo in this leadership capacity within the organization. Fearless Communicators is the organization that you are the CEO, founder, lead, story doula for. So talk about what Fearless Communicators, what was what was the mission when you started? Well, I knew from the very beginning that I wanted to show up in service of the world, that there were so many things that I was passionate about and interested in. And I was clear that I wasn't the expert on all of those things, <laughs> you know, so I didn't have to speak about all of those things, but I knew that I was uniquely resourced to work with people to show up more empowered, more grounded, more connected to their communication. Uh, so if I could build a business that worked with people who were poised to make the biggest difference in the world and elevate how they show up to speak now, myself mm -hmm. and my team get to have a piece in all of these conversations that I think are moving the world forward, uh, bringing more light, uh, creating agency and empowerment for voices that we may not have heard historically, creating more opportunity and space. Uh, and I think that it's also my own healing journey, right? On the one hand, the, the opportunity for me to be seen and honored and acknowledged without apology as myself, not putting on a character, not playing a role, which is my theater career, but just as myself in my own words is also healing for me. Right. So, uh, so I think that that was kind of at the root of fearless communicators. And I think there's one thing to be good at what it is that you do. It's another thing to be a business owner and run a business. <laughs> So that's been <laughs> yep. kind of the learning. The learning is like, it's one thing to have the idea and it's one thing to, to create the programs and start doing the work. You know, we've had the privilege of working with U.S. presidential candidates, you know, U.N. diplomats, the first ladies of seven African countries, you know, Fortune 500 companies, uh, people really poised on the front line of some of the biggest issues that the world is facing and working in a way that for them feels revolutionary and inspiring and meets them in the moment does not feel like something they've done before or taken before that they may have a traumatic relationship with. Uh, that to me is, is where the mission continues to evolve and grow. Right. And I think that it, no day is ever the same. People are profoundly compelling and interesting and in what they have to speak about is, and we get to act as translators, and that's part of the story doula piece, a bridge of someone's expertise uh, so that what it is that they're saying and how it is that they're saying it makes the biggest impact on the audience that they want to make a difference for. So, uh, you know, what started as like a one-man shop is now like a team of 13 people. We work with, again, clients all over the world. They're all primarily, well, everybody has some training as a stage actor, even our operations person. So we are, we are in the world of the theater and, uh, and stage performers. And I think more than anything, embodied storytellers. So we, we can, we understand both the priming of the instrument of the human body and how to prime that instrument so we can be receptive to the, when they're receptive to the power of presence and ride that in front of an audience. And then also expert story crafters 
uh, so that we're ensuring that the messages that you're imparting really stick with the audience in ways that they remember you and or your message far after that first uh, contact and connection with you. Yeah, it's this beautiful propping up of change makers and mission driven people and voices that need to be heard and can make a bigger impact and helping them be more effective in connecting. I mean, it's really beautiful that kind of, you know, one man shop that started as, you know, I want to, I want to help change and how you can funnel that into this thing that can exponentially impact so many people by bringing people's voices out and having them share with more people. You know, I, um, I was clear from the beginning that it was never Eduardo Placer coaching. Mm. It was always fearless communicators. And I was like, it was always built with an awareness that there was bigger than me. Right. And it's interesting that even the naming it, like the fearless communicators are our clients, right? It's yeah. the people that we get yeah. the privilege of serving. So I think in some ways, even in the framing of it, we've all, yeah. always been audience, community, people focused as opposed to founder focused. Um, and not that there's, I mean, for some people that makes sense that that is how they build their business or their organization. Just feel like from the very beginning, that's just been, uh, I think why we've built in the way that we've built is because that's always been the attention and the intention. Yeah. Yeah. How, how do you show up today as a leader and as a business owner? Who's Eduardo mm. as a leader? Unapologetic. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know what's interesting? I, you know, I've now been a business owner for almost 10 years. So it's been nine years. It'll be nine years in June of next year. I say nine years legal Zoom official with fearless communicators. And there were like other versions of it that existed before 2015. Uh, but we're gonna call it legal zoom official uh almost nine years. Uh, eight and a half years. I I continue to show up humble. Right? Because I've never built a company before. Like I've never, this is not like the second time I'm at an eight year or nine year marker <laughs> for building the business, right? There's a lot of complexity in building a business and the better you get and the more people you bring on and the more types of offerings that you have, it continues to build greater complexity. So I, I say I show up humble and resourced and always the first to learn, right? So I, I know that I am always, uh, I, am, I am both the possibility machine and the, the, the stop on the, on the organization. So I have to resource myself to make sure uh, that I keep the ball moving forward. Um, I think I show up confident in my ability. Like I know at this point that there are very few people who are able to operate in the ability that myself and or my team members are able to operate in this specific work around speaking. And it just continues to be validated. And I think it's just hours and hours and hours and hours of doing the work that there's a wonderful, almost freehand or, uh, or knowing 
where I think in the earlier days, I just felt like I'm, I'm not a parent. I don't have children, but I feel like in the way that a parent is like, you know, I bring in the child, I'm killing the child. Like in the first, you know, <laughs> months, weeks, years, you know, everything feels a little fragile. Like I don't feel so fragile anymore. So that also feels really good. Um, and I think I'm also showing up really hungry. I am showing up uh, ready to uh, to share. I, I'm showing up ready to amplify. Uh, I think that specifically in the pandemic landscape, I went more into business saving, uh, team building, setting up structures and infrastructures for the business that also then uh, took away from what it is that I have to say and what it is that I have to share about. And I think that's what's now coming in 2024. So I think I am having done this work now, I have some clear opinions about how to do this work and I am starting to be more of a vocal uh, advocate for this approach. And I feel like that's the profile of that is also increasing, uh, which is also taking greater courage and fearlessness on my part, you know? Yeah. Uh, So I think that, it's interesting. I'm not only the president, I'm also the client. <laughs> I like the hair club for men. Although I don't exactly. do hair club. I mean, still celebrating my ball. <laughs> yes. yes. Uh, but yeah, I think that, but I think that that is, um, I think there's a fine line between humility and apology. I'm never apologetic, always humble. And when I make mistakes, I apologize, but I don't apologize yeah, for myself. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, I, and I remember as an actor, there was a director that I worked with who said something because like, we work too darn hard to be lucky. Right? I mean, yes, there's divine alignment. And I've also done the work and I continue to do the work. Uh, okay. I have to pause here for a second. I really love what Eduardo says here. That there's a fine line between humility and apology. We can show up humble, but also not apologize for who we are. This is it. It's showing up humble, being willing to learn and grow and evolve and admit mistakes, and also holding on to the things that make you uniquely you and never apologizing for those things. Okay, back to Eduardo's brilliance. And I think the other thing that I'm also showing up is not alone, but I'm showing up in community. I have an extraordinary team of people who are really hungry and really interested and really excited. Uh, And I get to show up supported. I get to show up resourced. We get to show up together. So that's also fun, which is that, uh, that they're also building their platforms and their spaces uh, and they're building their audiences. And I think that's also broadening the people that we get, the privilege to make a difference for. Yeah. Is there is there something you can name around how how this culture of fearless communicators is has come to be so supportive, so generous? I feel like there's just like overflowing this overflowing cup of love that happens in your space with the people, with you guys with each other, you all with your clients. How did that come to be? I think that's top down. I mean, I think that is definitely, 
I think I don't know any other way to be. So I think that that very much, like, I think I create that in spaces that I'm in. Uh, I come from a big family. I feel unbe- I feel love abundant in my life. Uh, I have, uh, I have intimate love. I have friend love. I have family love. I have a big, huge, huge, huge family. And I think that, uh, this huge family is a family that has also dealt with historical trauma and through the historical trauma remained in deep connection and love. And I think that we are, I think part of the revolution is that most people don't feel supported and loved and championed in their public speaking. They have felt punished, belittled, (laughs) you know, shamed, embarrassed. And I think that we create a space where people feel like they can step into the, uh, on the edge of safety and know that they're going to get caught. Uh, Because ultimately, I believe what they have to say, what they have to share, what they have to offer is bigger than their fear. Right? So if we can diminish and lessen that fear, then then they can be the lighthouse to communicate what they have to communicate. And it's interesting, there's a biblical verse, which is perfect love casts out fear. And uh, I'm not a person, a person of faith. I am was born and raised Catholic. And I think I'm very culturally in that vein through just ra- being raised in Jesuit prep school or whatever. But I think that there's something beautiful about that idea that, uh, that the way we cast out fear is with perfect love. And uh, I think our goal with our clients is to, is to let them know that they are loved and championed and supported. And I think that if, I feel like so much of like 1980s or, <laughs> or before is like, uh, I mean, I like to play with 1980s public speaking, but, uh, but I would say so much educational training was about punishing or belittling or shaming. And it's like, if I'm negative, that's going to fire you to do better. And I would, sh- I, I'm like, sure, that's an approach. And I think championing people and having people show up big and bigger because you have a bigger listening for them. I think that's also a way in that is sometimes undervalued. And, you know, I'll say very quickly, you know, I had a woman once say to me, uh, you know, I'm looking for a coach and I want you to be, uh, she said, I want you to be brutally honest with me. And I said to her, I will never be brutal anything. Right? Because if we think about the words that we use, like that brutality is all about hurting and wounding. And again, that to me is not a useful place to be building from. Uh, because I'm building from fear or anger or sadness. And that could be fuel, but I think that fuel is only going to get you so far. And it's, and you know what? I spent so much of my life trying to harness that fuel. It's like, it's like coal or it's like, it's, it's not a renewable resource. I love that I'm saying this Mm -hmm. out loud. You know, this is the first time that I'm saying this. This is fucking good. (laughs) 
right? <laughs> well, but it's I, on record. <laughs> but I think that there's something very powerful about if the fuel is love and joy, that is renewable. That is uh, a fuel that I can come back to, a fuel that's needed. Um, and it's one thing for us to create the container where you can feel that. And I think that's why people keep coming back to us, right? Yeah. And we can teach you how you can be a Tesla and recharge that yourself. Yeah. Right. I don't know why I did the product placing with the Tesla, but the point is that you, <laughs> like you can, you can yeah. refuel that yourself, right? In relationship to your audience. And I think that that is, that is a different approach. That's a different way in. And I think that that, that actually speaks to the moment that we're in. And that doesn't mean that I can't be honest. That doesn't mean that I can't yes. highlight the things that you're doing that are, like we like to say, less thrilling. And that yes. doesn't mean that you don't have, <laughs> you don't have room to be better. You absolutely have room to be better. Right. But it is not of highest service to you to say that sucked or you're stupid. Or I know so many people who are so much better than you are. Or, uh, or that move, move, moment was really disappointing or who you are is really disappointing. Or, I mean, just even saying that, like where anyone would feel the permission yeah. to be able to say that to another human being, it's like so hurtful. And we all know how the brains work. If you have one person, if you have a hundred people, if you have 99 people who say glorious things to you and one person who has that comment, who are you going to think about? That one person who had that comment, it's just how our brains are operating. So we have to really learn how to exercise that muscle so that voice doesn't hijack uh, your power or, hi hi or hijack the, really the glory and the, the truth and joy of what it is that you have to share and communicate. Yeah. And it's, it is so clear, not just the methodology of how you do the work that you do, but the culture that you do create supports all of that and it supports the 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 fueling with love so that's really beautiful as we wrap up i just wanted to thank you for showing up fully authentically today you know as yourself um you know there's a there's many versions of ourselves that we can put out into the world and i think many people have probably seen a version of you that's on a stage dancing and doing all of these things. And then there's this version of you, um, that is here today and, mm. um, and they're all on a bed true. And they're all you on yeah, a bed. On a, yes. On a bed. I wasn't gonna, I wasn't gonna, I'm going to say it, yeah. convalescing after Good. surgery last Good. week. Right. And I yeah. think that that is, yeah. and they're all true, you know, and I think to end with, yes, to, with Whitman, to end with Whitman, you know, do I contradict myself very well? I contradict myself. I am multitudes. And I think that uh, we are all multitudes and what an opportunity to live in the stretch of allowing people to see our multitudinousness, <laughs> like allow them to see our yeah. multitudes that I am not one thing. I am many things. And sometimes those things can yes. be in contradiction and that that is okay. Uh, and, uh, and what a beautiful opportunity to continue to allow ourselves grace and permission to be seen as bigger and better and more whole and complete than we ever thought was possible beautiful 
Thank you so much for being on. Thank you. Eduardo is such a great beacon of bravery and authenticity, and this was really a treat for me to get into his story in this episode. We talked about people-pleasing and hiding ourselves, and we talked about moving from that into trusting yourself and really living your truth, both in our identities, but also on a stage or in a brainstorm, really capturing that moment, leaning into that moment of truth and inspiration. And I will leave you with a couple of questions to reflect on. And if you're a journaler, maybe you want to journal about it. And if you're not, I would say that it might be something to try out. And I will tell you that I actually hated journaling for a really long time. I I felt like for some reason, I would have to provide all of the context to my journal about what was going on. And it was as if I was describing it to a stranger. And that's what I didn't like about journaling is it felt like I had to edit myself or I had to provide context. And the, you know, the thing that really changed for me going from journaling to kind of more of this idea of free writing was super helpful for me. And it happened when I discovered what's called Morning Pages, which is a daily practice from a book called The Artist's Way by Julia Cameron. And I'll link the book and I'll also share a link to this specific practice. But I felt like I had to kind of create this edited contextual idea of whatever it is that I wanted to write. And when I started doing Morning Pages, I was able to reframe journaling into a free write or a brain dump or a heart dump and that it's not for anyone to see, but actually just for the process of getting something out of me and onto a page and doing that with the intention to throw it away or even burn it afterwards, not writing for the purpose of me or someone else reading it afterwards, but writing for the purpose of this release, this process, um, and not for the outcome of what's on the page. That really changed something for me. So here are the questions that I would offer up to you. As you reflect back on this episode, where are you holding yourself back from showing up fully? Where are you favoring your connection to others? and sacrificing your connection to yourself. And last, where can you step into courage and curiosity and maybe test the waters? Bringing a part of you forward that maybe past evidence told you that you had to hide. Thanks so much for listening to Working Your Way. Make sure to follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you like to listen to podcasts. You can also check out all of our episodes, show notes, additional resources, and more at selfatwork.com forward slash podcast.